This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanc Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Fabian Langer, an economics professor at McGill University. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Supervisors and Performance Management Systems, which is co-authored with Anders Frederiksen and Lisa Kahn and was published in 2020 at the Journal of Political Economy. Fabian, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. The title of the paper talks about performance management systems, but more specifically, what you actually study in the paper is performance reviews or subjective performance evaluations. Can you tell us what they are and why companies use them? They've become pretty ubiquitous in the last, I don't know, three decades or so. And what they are is essentially companies are relying on supervisors to rate workers. Often this is part of like an annual uh, review with the worker, with, with their team members. And in the simplest versions, they will give them a score on a rating scale. Sometimes you might have heard of something like a nine box, in which case several scores are being asked for on different dimensions. And so essentially they are subjective, elicited ratings that supervisors are providing about their team members and their performance over the year. And then there's variation in how the firms actually, you know, do these or what they ask for or what the scales are. So I presume that companies are relying on these indicators of performance because there aren't other performance indicators that are superior or more objective. Yeah, that, I think that's right. I mean, in many of the modern work situations, especially in the service economy, there is no well-defined output per hour, right? You work in a team, how much that team produces depends on your performance, but it's not that easy to have an objective measure of that performance, right? This is not something like a working on an assembly line and producing a number of uh, widgets per hour or something like that. So you also mentioned in the paper that these performance reviews are sometimes somewhat controversial. What are the main criticisms that they have received? Well, in, parts of them are just simply because of the subjectivity. So I think individually, they can be perceived as very call it, subject to favoritism. They give the supervisor a fair amount of power in that sense. So that's one criticism. And I think that's a criticism that is going to be subjectively experienced by workers a lot. And then there are other ones, such as supervisors are often very reluctant of using the whole rating scale, right? So that's, for instance, something we see in our data where most of these ratings are compressed on a relatively small part of the support of the scale. You know, everybody gets judged to be above average, like Wabagon effect, essentially, if you're in the US. And then there's also, and that, that's, we are playing off of that a lot in our paper, there's just a lot of subjectivity in this, and this subjectivity is going to vary across supervisors. And that can introduce a source of career risk for workers, for the team members. So the favoritism is not something that you specifically look at in this paper, but the fact that some supervisors may interpret what excellent is in a different way than other supervisors is something that you tackle head on in the paper. And there is even a name for this. What is the name? So we call it leniency bias. This goes back to Guilford, the paper in the 50s, which is that just as you just said, like the same performance might elicit a different, systematically different rating 
depending on the identity of the supervisor. And some of them are more lenient than others. And we are interested in that heterogeneity, right? If everybody is just more lenient, if everybody gets graded on the scale, then firms would find it very easy to take that out. But what we are particularly interested in is, well, you might get lucky and you might have a supervisor who's generally a nice supervisor and she just gives good grades to everybody. Or you might have a supervisor who is a much harsher grader and she gives bad grades for the same amount of performance. And that's essentially the phenomenon we are studying. What do you actually do to measure or distinguish that leniency bias from other explanations as to why some supervisors may give higher ratings than others? So in the paper, we are lucky to have access to the personnel records from a large service sector company in Scandinavia over many years. So what we can do is we can follow workers over time and we know the identities of their supervisors. We know who they are being rated by and those supervisors change. So we can systematically measure using a regression technique, double fixed effects methods. We can systematically measure if there are some supervisors that tend to give on average higher ratings than other supervisors, because we see people move between these teams. And so the set of people that are being evaluated by the supervisors varies. And we'll find a lot of that heterogeneity. But then the challenge is, well, maybe the supervisors that are giving these really high ratings, maybe they exhibit this leniency bias that I described, or maybe they are actually just better at eliciting good team performance, good performance out of the teams that they are managing. And how do you separate those two? That's kind of one of the challenges we face. And then the other challenge that we face is to say, like, we can identify this heterogeneity, but we don't know if the firm is aware of who the high and low raters are. So how can we determine that? We are probably going to refer to the supervisors as supervisors, because this is what you write in the title of your paper. But in some sense, they are not supervisors, they are managers. If they were only supervisors, that is, if they only supervised, they would not be active participants in the production function of the workers. And therefore, they would not have any ability to influence. But you are saying that uh, in addition to the leniency bias, purely as observers of that signal, that the firm is unaware of and that they have to transmit. In addition to that, they're also managers in that they interact with the worker and therefore they can enhance the productivity of the worker. And therefore they can report a higher signal because they made their workers better. They increased that productivity, right? So they manage them better. And these are the two alternatives that you are trying to disentangle in, in your empirical analysis. You hit the nail on the, on the head. The people that are being asked to evaluate the workers are also the people that are managing these workers, right? Like managing the teams that these workers form part of. Um, and that's kind of obvious because those are the people who see them perform over the course of the year. So as an example, half of our firm works in a branch network. These branch networkers are maybe like a dozen to two dozen people. And in these branch networks, there are one or two top-ranked people within the branch that rate the rest of the branch. These heads of the branch, they are running, like most of their job is actually running the team day to day. And only part of it is to report on the performance of the workers up the chain. Okay, so three objectives. 
document the magnitude of this heterogeneity in ratings that comes from the supervisor side, explore the sources of the heterogeneity, in particular, distinguish whether it is due to leniency bias or the ability of the managers of these workers. And thirdly, as you said, try to understand whether the firm is aware of the heterogeneity and the reasons for the heterogeneity. You have already said that it is a Scandinavian firm. Can you describe in, in some more detail what is the actual setting that you study and what data you have? Yeah, so I can't tell you the precise industry. I can tell you it's in the service sector. It's a Scandinavian firm. So it's a large firm. So it's about, in any given year, about 13,000 workers. Half of the firm works in a central office. So you might think about human resource management, accounting, these kind of things, controlling various central office activities. And the remainder of the firm works in this branch network. The workers are switching branches. Sometimes they're switching from the central office to the branch network. And in the branches, they're working in, as I said, that the median worker works in a branch with about 17 workers. And then within the central office, we also know what are the teams that they are in. So these are teams that are like, what I call a team now is all the people that receive ratings from the same person. That's about maybe eight people on average. So that's a little bit about the structure of the firm. What's unusual about this data is that we have the identity of the supervisor. So we have essentially the entire personnel records of this firm over a number of years. And because we observe the entire hierarchy of the firm, we also observe ratings that the supervisor themselves receives from their supervisor. So we observe essentially the, the pyramid of ratings, if you want so. And then we have some additional really useful sources of information. We have some measures of other measures of output at the team level for the branch network. We have key performance indicators for the branches. So that's going to be very useful later on when we try to separate whether managers are actually better at managing from whether they're just rating higher. For a small subset of the workers, we actually have something akin to an individual performance measure. That's a pretty small subset of the data. We have what we call bottom-up evaluations. These are worker satisfaction surveys where workers report on various aspects of their job, including the relationship to their supervisor. So that helps us kind of determine things about whether a worker actually likes working for a supervisor. And then, of course, because we have the panel, we see whether they're quitting, we see whether they're layoff, how much they are being paid in different years, their bonuses that they're receiving, all of that type of information. So we try to kind of paint a painting using all of these different sources of information to understand what goes on in this ratings system of this firm. One thing that you didn't mention is the fact that in this firm, supervisors are also partially responsible for allocating raises and bonus to their employees. That is, there is some complicated system of pay pools where the money flows downhill and managers of, say, a branch are given a certain budget and they have to allocate it among their workers. I was wondering whether this system might introduce some type of mechanical correlation between ratings and wages, because obviously if a supervisor rates worker A very highly, typically it will be 
to reward worker A with a higher wage. Is that at all relevant here or? I think it is. I think it's something to be worried about. So first I would say, I wish I knew better the precise mechanism in which pay is being set. My impression is that the firm doesn't really know that itself. It's a bit of an amorphous process, right? My understanding from conversations with the firm and just from working with this data is that in the central office, there's something like a salary pool that's being set for the year. They want to keep control of overall salaries. And then there's a process in which this gets broken down through the firm. But that process is subject to bottom-up input as well. Like there's information flowing in both directions. I think it would be really nice to understand this better, but I have somewhat limited understanding on the salary setting process. Now to your question, I think it's right. There might be some mechanical correlation between the rating and the salary received by the same supervisor if they are facing a fixed pool of salary. What we are going to observe is that supervisors that give higher ratings to their workers, on average, the salary pool for that group is also going to be higher. And that wouldn't be observable. You wouldn't observe that in a setting where the, the salary pool was entirely fixed. So we do think it is responsive to this type of uh, bottom-up information. You will document later that there is a relation between managers who give higher ratings and, and the productivity of their workers. But this is also an indirect evidence of that because it indicates that these managers are able to successfully convince the firm that their workers do deserve these higher wages and therefore they get a higher pool. Yes. So what we are going to show is that those managers that are on average giving higher ratings, all else equal, the workers working for these managers are also receiving higher wages. And that could be due because the, the manager is able to convince the firm that these workers are more productive even though the workers aren't, right? Just a pure leniency bias that the firm can't undo. Or it could be because the managers are actually making their workers more productive. They're getting them to exert more effort and the firm compensates the workers for that. Both of these interpretations are valid. We think that there's evidence for the latter and that evidence comes from these other types of performance measures that I mentioned before, but also the firm itself pays supervisors more that are higher raters. And they wouldn't do that if these higher raters weren't actually better managers, right? So these two pieces of information suggest that these managers that give high ratings are on average also succeeding in getting more higher performance out of their workers. Okay, but the first thing that you do in the paper is to document, as, as we said earlier, that supervisors differ substantially in how they rate their subordinates. How do you do that with the data that you told us about? So technically, what we are doing is we are running what's called a double fixed effects regression. Now, that's not going to mean anything to part of your audience, at least. So what is that? Well, it's essentially we have a set of supervisors and a set of workers and workers and supervisors in different years are being mixed anew, right? So you have workers moving from supervisor to supervisor. So now this, this technique that I described, what it does, it says, okay, I'm going to follow the same worker over time and observe this worker for two different supervisors. If I see that this worker gets a higher rating from supervisor A as opposed to supervisor B, then that's evidence that supervisor A, well, on average gives higher ratings for the same worker. 
And if that happens systematically, when workers move from supervisor B to supervisor A, their ratings go up, then that suggests that supervisor A is just a higher rater. And in a regression framework, well, you're going to throw in fixed effects for the supervisor, fixed effects for the worker, and then perform a whole bunch of statistical magic to make sure that what you are measuring is not just estimation error. One issue here in this type of techniques is that you have to rule out the possibility that workers who in particular years are anyway more productive get assigned to certain supervisors. So imagine that there is a supervisor who is looking around whenever there is some worker who is sick, he tries to not manage that worker. If something of that type goes on, that supervisor will be associated with a very high fixed effect, but not because he is more lenient, not because he makes the workers better, but instead because he manages to get rid of unproductive workers. But in your study, you show that there is evidence that this is not going on in your data set. How do you do that? Yeah, so let me just make sure that we understand the problem, right? So the problem is not that some supervisors on average might have better workers, right? That would be okay. The problem is, as you correctly said, Jordi, if some supervisors get workers, particularly in those periods where they are either low productivity, maybe because they're sick, or high productivity. So how do we rule this out? Well, there, there's some indirect evidence. So when we see workers move to the firm, we can observe their ratings in the years before they are going to be assigned to a new supervisor. What we see, no evidence at all that there's something unusual going on in the years before. So there's, in a sense, it's a pretend. We're looking at the pretrends in the ratings that they receive and the other things that they receive. There's no evidence, actually, that those workers that are going to move to a high rater as opposed to a low rater look different according to the data in previous years. And then we can also look at particular reassignments that are more likely, like when people get reassigned across supervisors, that are more likely to be random and not systematic. For instance, if an old supervisor leaves the firm, well, all his new workers are going to need to be reassigned, right? And presumably that process is more random. So in that setting, we also don't see any systematic patterns that point towards particular supervisors attracting. If we just focus on those instances, our estimates are completely consistent with no systematic reassignment of workers to remedial supervisors, if you will, that type of evidence. So before we, we move to the other things that you do, staying here in this like double fixed effect regression, where the objective is to estimate what is the effect of the supervisor on the ratings of the worker for each of the supervisors. One thing that you mentioned earlier is that you are studying the whole firm. This includes the branches, but also the central office, HR, other, other divisions. I presume, therefore, the jobs that you study can be quite different because obviously you're looking at the whole of the firm. Typically, I would expect that, well, maybe there are some jobs that are easier than others or in which it is easier to excel than in others. And I know that a, a double fixed effects regression is hard enough, but I was wondering whether the supervisors may be supervising over particular jobs 
that are easier or harder. And you may be picking up the effect of the job there as the workers rotate across jobs rather than the effect of the supervisor. Is that something that at all worried you? To the, to the extent that these jobs are observable, especially what you would worry here is about, let's say, a branch that is supervised by a particular supervisor that just happens to be in a more favorable location or something like that, right? You can control for that. To the extent that there's still enough variation in assignment of team members to supervisors. You still need to have a lot of that. And so we control for it as much as we can. I don't remember exactly the specifications, but I do know that, for instance, we control of whether you work in the branch network. In some specifications, we include becomes like a triple fixed effects. Then like we include fixed effects for the branch. So then you exploit when supervisors move across branches or team member move across branches, the kind of department like team members are working in. So you can try to control for those type of things. And then at some point, you're going to have to make a leap of faith and they're going to have to say, okay, it looks as if there's something that is actually heterogeneous across supervisors that we are picking up, right? Eventually you run out of like skepticism. <laughs> Do you find that the supervisors matter a lot or just a little bit or something in between? They matter a lot. So a supervisor that's a standard deviation more generous, right? So if you take the distribution of supervisors, if you happen to get a supervisor that's one standard deviation more generous, that's associated with about a 30 percentage point difference in the probability of getting a high rating as opposed to a low rating. That's one way of quantifying this. And we can also try to quantify this in terms of outcomes for the individual, the worker being supervised. The way we do this is we look at a worker, we observe whether the worker is rated by a high supervisor or a low supervisor, and then we estimate what that does to the worker's earnings in the year that he or she is being supervised, but also following the worker throughout the rest of his career. So if you do that, then you can construct statistics such as if you happen to be assigned to a supervisor who is at the 90th percentile as opposed to the 10th percentile of the distribution of being a high rater, how high their ratings are systematically, that's associated with over the course of the career, a 6 to 12% of an annual salary increase in the present discounted value of earnings. So let me just repeat this in case this wasn't clear. One year for somebody who is a, a high rater as opposed to a low rater is going to have an impact on the earnings over the rest of your life that if you aggregate all of that up is about 6 to 12% of an annual salary. That's a lot. It is a lot. I, I want to emphasize here that the generosity of the supervisor or being a high rater or low rater, at this point, we still don't know what the reason for this differential rating is, right? So this generosity that you refer to, that's not leniency. That just means empirically, when you happen to be assigned to that supervisor, you are going to receive on average a higher rate. We still don't know whether you get a higher rate having done the same quality of job or a higher rate because you did a better job as a result of the manager allowing you to do a better job. And you have a, a theoretical model that gives you differential predictions as to what type of empirical patterns we should observe if the differences in ratings are caused by leniency rather than managerial ability. Can you outline what are the fundamentals of this model and what these different predictions are? 
Yes, so precisely the way you express it is, is, is absolutely correct. We don't know this yet. So in this model that we have, um, we allow for these two sources of heterogeneity, right? One of them is that some supervisors just don't like giving bad ratings. That's the leniency bias. And there's variation across supervisors. That's one component of the model. And the other component is a production model in which the productivity return to effort exerted of workers depends on the supervisor, right? A better supervisor is going to get more output, more value for the firm out of the same effort exercised by workers and out of the same additional effort. So now we have these two sources of heterogeneity. Okay, so now imagine that this source of heterogeneity, these differences in ratings, is all the leniency bias. Right? What should we observe then? Well, if it's all the leniency bias and the firm doesn't know who, which of these supervisors are more lenient supervisors, then earnings would still increase in the rating. However, since it's all leniency bias, the firm would not reward the supervisors themselves that are higher raters. So what would happen in this setting is that the supervisors themselves, their salaries would not differ with whether or not they are systematically higher raters. Second, if it's all leniency bias, and if we have a separate performance measure of these workers, right, something else of the workers working for a supervisor, then we shouldn't see that second performance measure is higher or lower depending on the ratings of the supervisor. And then third, if it's all this just the leniency of the supervisor, then the firm also wouldn't incentivize, wouldn't increase the loading on the performance of the worker. So they wouldn't make the worker compensation more dependent on the rating or less dependent on the rating because it's all just essentially this heterogeneity is all just leniency bias. So that's if it's leniency bias. On the other hand, if the heterogeneity comes from differences in the ability to manage and get workers to exercise effort, what would we observe then? Again, as before, we would observe that earnings of the workers, by before I mean the leniency setting, earnings of the workers would increase if they're working for supervisors with higher ratings. I should qualify this, but let me not at this point. The second empirical prediction in that case would be that to the extent that the firm knows who the better supervisors are, the salaries of those supervisors should be higher, right? So then higher rating supervisors would actually themselves receive higher salaries. Another prediction is those other performance measures that I referred to earlier, should actually also themselves be increasing for supervisors that are higher raters. And a third prediction is that since these supervisors are actually lowering the costs of exerting effort on the part of workers, part of their team members, the firm should start to try to inspire more for exerting higher effort if they work for a high rater. So the bonuses that these workers receive, the performance pay that these workers receive should become more tightly linked to the performance ratings. So these are going to be the patterns that we are looking for. You have uh, five dependent variables and four cases. <laughs> so this is like 
all kinds of combinations of patterns. But in fact, it's actually all very intuitive. If we go variable by variable and we stop to say for this variable, the different cases should predict this and that, it is very obvious very quickly that the predictions here are based on common sense. You have a model, but they're still based on common sense. And the conclusions that you will reach are really very intuitive. The first relation that you study is between the wages and the supervisor effect, okay? And just as a reminder, regardless of what the reason for the supervisor effect is, if the firm is completely informed about the differences in supervisors, then wages shouldn't vary or should vary very little. Whereas if the firm is not informed, then wages should be increasing in the supervisor effect. That's not precise. That's not actually not quite right. What you said is regardless of what the source is. So if the source is leniency bias and the firm knows which supervisors are more or less lenient, then wages will not depend on the supervisor effect. But if the source of the heterogeneity is that some supervisors are better at managing their workers, what then happens is that this manager is going to get the workers to exert more effort and the firm will compensate the workers for this additional effort. Okay, you're correct, obviously, because you wrote the paper. <laughs> but so what is it that you find? <laughs> so, well, what we find is that uh, salaries compensation that workers receive is actually increasing and statistically significant, fairly significantly increasing whether or not you are being assigned to a high rater. So that's consistent with this managerial story that I told before. So the, the quality of the manager story, where the firm observes that the manager is a better supervisor, but it is also consistent with the firm does not observe who the more lenient supervisors are. And therefore, when the more lenient supervisors give better ratings to their workers, the workers are being compensated for it. What it is inconsistent is the notion that there are more or less lenient supervisors and the firm knows who the more or less lenient supervisors are. Why? Because in that setting, the firm would just undo this leniency, right? There's no reason to compensate workers for being assigned to a higher rating and punish them, them for being assigned to a lower rating. So we can already rule out the edge case where firms are perfectly informed about the heterogeneity of the supervisors and it's all leniency bias. Very good. The second prediction or, or the second empirical pattern that you study is on the relation between peace rates and the supervisor effects. By peace rates, I mean the loading that you were referring to earlier, which is the difference in wages for the worker when they are rated as having passed the performance review as opposed to not having passed it. What do you find there? Again, what we find there is we find that these peace rates are higher when workers are working for supervisors that are higher raters. Actually, interestingly, that relationship, this higher peace rate, that actually also strengthens with how long the supervisors have been in the firm. So the, this observation that these ratings are higher uh, that is consistent with this managerial ability story, right? That's consistent with the notion that the manager lowers the marginal effort cost for the workers. Now, the trade-off between eliciting effort and subjecting workers to the vagaries of a performance pay system shifts towards, let's try to get more effort out of them. And so the firm is going to make these piece rates higher. So that's consistent with the firm observes the heterogeneity across supervisors, and this heterogeneity is due to managerial ability. 
It is inconsistent with a world in which this heterogeneity is entirely due to leniency bias, regardless of whether the firm would observe that or not. And also inconsistent with uh, the heterogeneity being due to ability and the firm being completely uninformed about it. Exactly. If the firm is completely uninformed about it, it, couldn't, it wouldn't change the, the performance contract. It couldn't change the performance contracts. So this points towards the firm knows something, at least something, about the heterogeneity across supervisors. It also kind of suggests what I said earlier, that this effect gets stronger the longer the supervisors work in the firm also suggests that the firm figures out which of the managers are better supervisors, right? And then like it takes them, maybe there's maybe a learning process on the part of the firm about this. And then they, over time, make these piece rates increase in response to that. You mentioned earlier that you are not completely informed about the details of wage allocation and everything. So... I know that in your very stylized uh, theory model, there is one worker, there is one supervisor, and then there is a firm that sets the optimal contract. But in practice, we would expect that there are lots of rigidities to this. Like there is, the firm is not going to look at every match of worker and supervisor and then rethink the, the contract for the worker on that basis. But instead, there will be wages that are assigned to the job and, you know, how how plausible do you think in practice that the mapping between you know the the bonuses or that you are finding here and how it actually works uh, in practice is yeah i fully agree i think there's lots of noise and rigidities and just all kinds of things about this the pay systems that are that that, are, that i don't model that i don't understand that introduce noise here. I think in part, the pay system is left somewhat ambiguous. The way that pay in the end is, is determined is, is not strictly written down. There's not a fixed set of rules that determine that. And I think in part, that is designed in order to allow flexibility for such patterns as I just described to in, evolve endogenously, maybe without the people who make those decisions really being cognizant about what they are doing. So what I mean is like there is, you know, at the various parts of the firm, there might be a pay committee, those parts of the firm, they might realize over time by working together, which of the managers differ in their managerial style, which of them are, are the team members happier with, they get a, like a, it's a trial and error process. So I think it can be responsive in part through these ambiguities in the wage setting process without that if you asked anybody who is involved in it, that they could like literally tell you, well, we increased this person's salary by two and a half thousand pounds because of this precise reason. But I think that's kind of a wrong way of thinking about these systems. But yes, I think it's a fascinating area to study is how these, these pay decisions actually come around in the, in the real world. So the third empirical pattern that you study is on workers' productivity. As you said, you have actual objective measures of worker or branch-level productivity for some subset of the data set. Can you repeat what are these measures of productivity and what do you find when you regress them against the supervisor ratings effect? Yes, so the measures of productivity that we have come from the branch network. And what we have there is the branches were ranked on a variety of key performance indicators, KPIs, 
that central management apparently found relevant for the branch performance. So these include things like customer satisfaction, but also profitability of the branch, like a variety of such measures, revenues, maybe something about the mix of the products that they are selling. Now, what we as researchers have is not the actual individual measures, but we have a ranking of branches. This is a bit complicated, but the firm generated basically branches in peer groups. And these peer groups are changing over time. And within those peer groups of branches, they tell us the ranking of the branch. This is the top ranked branch. That's the second ranked branch. It's the third ranked branch. And we have that for a number of years. So what we are seeing is for these branch level measures is that branches in which the supervisors are on average higher raters, branches that are headed by supervisors that are higher raters, they tend to be more highly ranked. And also when supervisors move into the branches and that supervisor is a higher or lower ranked, these KPI rankings follow that. So we see that performance at the branch correlates with these rankings and seems to be caused by these, well, either the higher rating themselves or whatever correlates with the higher rating. So that's the first thing. And then we have for a really relatively small subset of the data, individual level measures these are some workers in the firm that are uh, having products. Essentially, they have a lot of customer contact and they have like portfolios of customers and the profitability of these portfolios of customers. And we can look at changes in these profitabilities as these workers get supervised by different supervisors, how that changes. And along both of those dimensions, we find evidence that higher rating supervisors are also associated with higher performance, higher productivity in that sense. I obviously don't need to underline that this is evidence in favor of the notion that the higher ratings are caused by higher managerial ability as opposed to higher leniency. It's kind of obvious. That's what the dependent variable is. Yeah, it's the most direct. I mean, that's in a sense the most direct piece of evidence on that question, right? Because it's immediately measured. Like it's, it's, we are fortuitous in this context to have this because these rating systems just generally are being used in cases where, where it's hard to get such performance measures, right? That's why we use subjective ratings. That's why firms use subjective ratings. The fourth prediction is on the wages of the supervisors themselves. Again, you find a positive relation. Yes, so yeah, so we find a positive relationship. Firms are paying higher rating supervisors higher salaries. And that is also consistent and intuitively consistent with this managerial ability notion, right? If it was all about leniency bias, then the firm wouldn't actually value supervisors more or less that are higher raters, right? This variability in the rating is then just like something that it's a nuisance to the firm. So salaries of those supervisors shouldn't be increasing just because they are higher raters. But what we observe instead is that the higher rating supervisors also receive higher salaries. Now, I think this is a little bit, we have to be careful here. I'm not claiming that just by giving out better grades, you can get yourself a higher salary, right? The way that I interpret this is that supervisors that are giving better grades are also just better managers in all the other aspects of managing. By being better managers, they are getting higher performance out of their workers, and that is then reflected in the grades that they are giving. And so this is again consistent with the notion that it's managerial ability, 
And this finding that firms actually pay the supervisors for it is also consistent with that the firms are at least in part informed about this variability. Yeah, so we are going down the list here. Everything is starting to be very consistent. So uh, fortunately, we have evidence across the different variables that are all pointing, broadly speaking, in the same direction. So higher supervisor ratings have to be at least partly with higher managerial ability because they are able to get higher productivity from their workers and get themselves higher salaries. And the firm doesn't seem to be fully informed about it is something that you find from the third prediction, which is the prediction on workers' surplus. How do you measure the surplus of the workers and what do you find in relating that to the manager fixed effects? Yes, so when we look at the surplus of the worker, we rely on two sources of information. The first source of information is these worker satisfaction surveys that I had earlier. And their workers are literally being asked like, like whether they enjoy working at where they are working, right? And so they also get asked questions directly about the supervisors, like how satisfied they are with the performance of their supervisor. And those workers working for higher rating supervisors tend to say that they prefer working for these supervisors than those workers working for lower ranking supervisors. And that is true even holding constant the own rating of the worker. So that suggests that these workers are getting out some rent, right? some economic rent. They prefer working for the higher rating supervisors. The second piece of information is in essence a revealed preference, I would say, or like voting by your feet kind of an argument. We see that workers that are working for higher rating supervisors, they tend to quit those supervisors less. They tend to quit the firm less. These statistical results are not quite as robust as we would like them to be anymore. But overall, both of these findings suggest that workers enjoy working more when they work for higher rating supervisors. So why is that suggest that the firm is not fully informed about this? Well, if the firm was fully informed about this and was fully rational and profit maximizing about it, they could cut the salaries of these workers without losing them, right? So they should extract those economic rents. So there's something, for some reason, the firm doesn't do this. We call it information. Maybe it's notions of fairness. Maybe it's like something else. We call it information. Lack of information or the inability to take full advantage that may be caused by some other type of rigidity. Okay, so we we started saying that subjective performance evaluations are ubiquitous. I think that's the word that you used. I mentioned that they can be somewhat controversial or disliked sometimes by sometimes by supervisors. Workers often find them stressful. You have told us that the differences in ratings across supervisors are at least partly caused by managerial ability and that the firm is not fully informed about these differences or these reasons, or at least not able to take full advantage of these reasons. Do these findings indicate that these performance reviews are still useful? I mean, I think so, yes. I mean, they these performance reviews allow the firm to compensate workers for the effort that they exert, right? To compensate those that exert more effort more than those that exert less effort, right? They also allow the firm to select for promotions those workers that that, um, that are 
better, right? You need to have some information on those. But more narrowly in our setting, they allow the firm to set the appropriate amount of incentives. Why is that good for workers and for the firm? Well, that allows worker firm relationship to become more productive, which ultimately is going to feed back into the compensation of the worker as well as the profitability of the firm. So in that sense, I think they are useful and that probably explains why so many firms are collecting these measures, why this has become a very common practice, even though, as you also just noted, it's not the most fun thing for a supervisor to have to sit down and you know, rate their workers. Most people would probably not prefer not to have to do that. Similarly, for the workers, it like induces a source of variability in their earnings and maybe a certain amount of stress that if there wasn't a use for it, would like to avoid. But the central problem in personnel economics or one of the central problems in personnel economics is to try to elicit effort, to try to incentivize effort when that effort itself is difficult to observe. And these performance ratings are one way to try to do that, to try to solve that problem. You also mentioned that your findings indicate that interfering too much with these performance reviews, say by putting constraints on the managers through graded curves, could be counterproductive. Can you explain why that is the case? So we showed that these ratings on average 10, we think that these ratings correlate with the managerial style, right? Now, it could be that the ratings are completely independent of the managerial style, but it could also be that managers are, that they are part and parcel of the management style, right? So if you now start restricting managers in using these ratings, maybe in the way that they manage their teams, you might actually interfere in their ability to elicit higher effort from workers, in, the, in their ability to manage these teams, right? So if we had observed in our data that it was all leniency bias, like all this heterogeneity was leniency bias, then maybe interfering with these types of rating systems is less dangerous because you're not directly interfering with the management style of the managers, the supervisors. There are other reasons why you would not want to go for forced curves, right? If, if the manager can only hand out like one passing grade and like if they are limited in what they can hand out, then that could disrupt the teams. Teams can get dysfunctional. There are other reasons, but those are beyond our paper. I think here it is just like the, the tight link that we establish between the heterogeneity in ratings and the heterogeneity in managerial ability suggests that it might be dangerous to muck around with that too much. Fabian, thank you for coming to the program. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. My guest today has been Fabian Langel. My name is Jordi Lanes Vidal, and this is The Visible Hand Podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to some of the papers that we discuss. Music and logo by Aitana Danesiso, and episode produced by Anderson Tan.